Uh, let's open our Bibles again to Matthew chapter 21. Uh, remember, uh, yes, last week we looked at this triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. This very significant, prophetically significant passage, and we spent some time on it last week. Very technical, and I don't apologize for that. It's very fascinating. Today is going to be a little bit technical, but I promise that after we get through this passage, uh, things will return to normal somewhat, <laughs> okay? Um, but but I, I, as I've been going through this, I want to share with you something that I've been kind of uh, working through and I put this chart together. I, I, I'm very interested in the way things... Uh, I'm going to move this. I'm very interested in the chronology of things. Uh, and the reason for that is it helps me understand things in order and sequence. And sometimes that order of sequence really sheds light on a lot. It can really help you get a timeline for things and, help, and open your understanding. And so I really enjoy these kinds of things, and I've really spent quite a bit of time on this chart, and some of it here is going to shock you a little bit, and this is uh, something I consider this a, a little bit evergreen, although I, I believe with the exception of, of this event right over here, this, uh, the anointing of Mary, it's very possible this event could be uh, over here on Sunday, but this is basically just a a chart, if you will, that I put together based on current scholarship from Harold Honer, who is um, the gentleman who also uh, revised the work of Sir Robert Anderson concerning the, the dates of Daniel's 70th week. And most people that I, that I would name for you, uh, experts in this field of prophecy, um, all hold to this these figures. And so the, those who really know what they're talking about are really um, kind of hanging on this. Um, and so, um, spent quite a bit of time on this, and uh, until further notice, I'm going to hold to this. And so I bring it forth to you as some fear and intrepidation, and I would encourage you, um, even if there are things in here that you want to challenge me about, I, I'm open to that. But I want to, I'll also show you some things, but, but, I, but I really mean that. If there's something here that doesn't sound right to you, let's, let's talk about it, because um, uh, there's a lot here. Um, and let me just give you one thing. Most of us have, and again, not to burst any bubbles or make, cause any schisms or anything like that, but most of the time, the church has held to Palm Sunday as being this time of the triumphal entry. Uh, and we normally have celebrated this on Sunday. But in the scripture, it doesn't mention anything about it being on the first day of the week at all, actually. It's just a church tradition. There's nothing wrong with that. We can still celebrate Palm Sunday on the Sunday before you know, Easter. We can still do that. I don't have a problem with that. But in reality, it appears that it actually was Monday, the 10th of Nizon. And there's a couple books, and, and I'm just going to quickly say this, and then we've got to move on here. But for those of you who are nuts like myself, uh, there's two books that I would highly encourage you. One is A Harmony of the Gospels by A.T. Robertson. It's not real easy, but it, it's, uh, it'll put things in order for you chronologically. And then there's another book uh, that I used when we were going through last week, uh, Daniel's 70th week, and specifically this triumphal entry and the dates, the new dates that they've come up with, uh, re revising the dates from Sir Robert Anderson's book, The Coming Prince. Um, this is a fantastic book. Uh, this gentleman was from Dallas Theological Seminary. Just a fantastic, incredible, it's blowing my mind. 
honestly. But it all is starting to add up for me, and I'm just, I just want to share that with you, not to confuse anybody, but just to give you the truth, and then you can decide what you want to do with it. But in the reality of things, as we go through the Word of God, it's, this is all fun and good, and if, if it doesn't make sense to you and you're a little intimidated by it, don't let it be, because if you believe in Christ, that's enough, <laughs> okay? Nerds like myself, I want to know that Holy Week. I want to know the Passion Week. I want to know when things lined up and where they came, And because as I read through my Bible now and as I consult this list, I'm, I'm putting it all together, and I've spent a lot of time on this, and other people have spent even more time, so this is not an original thing of mine. I just put it in this format. But the title of this morning's message is, what is the title of the message? By the way, I didn't send out the e-bullet, and I apologize. Uh, Tom normally does that, and I forgot to do it because he's been so faithful at doing it. And he's doing well, by the way. He's, he's, he's sore from his uh, surgery. He hasn't had his transplant yet, but they've had to do some uh, other things. But, uh, so keep praying for him and Deb. Um, but the title of this morning's message is The Product of Sin and Unbelief. And especially as we talk about the fig tree that Jesus cursed, and we look at Jesus cleansing the temple for the very last time before his crucifixion, uh, all of this is the result, the product, if you will, of sin of Israel and their unbelief, and the product of that unbelief. We know what the Bible says concerning sin. Romans 6.23 tells us, doesn't it? For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. The only thing that can come out of a life of sin and unbelief is death and destruction. And we're going to see that today. At least the death, and maybe not the physical death, but the death of a nation. uh, The death of, of their belief in their God, whom they claim to believe in back at this time. And I got to ask all of us this morning and just kind of put it into our court, if you will. Are you living a life of sin and unbelief? And if you are, how is that working out for you? As we look at Israel, I, I would encourage you to not be focused so much on them, but also focused on, hey, what about me? People haven't really changed. It doesn't matter your ethnicity, where you came from, your skin color. It doesn't matter. We're all the same. We're all sinners in need of salvation. Amen? But are you really happy living the life you're living? Are you really fulfilled? And I I say that to the Christian and especially to the non-Christian person who hasn't given their heart to to God. But I want to encourage you, as Psalm 34 encourages us, the psalmist says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There it is for us. There is no want or lack to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. So by this time... In this narrative that we're looking at in Matthew, the Jews and the nation of Israel have they've rejected their long-awaited Messiah. They've completely rejected him. 
uh, and they've rejected their Messiah, the Messiah that their own prophets had been foretelling about for hundreds and even a few thousand years. And instead of receiving Christ as their king when he rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, they wanted nothing to do with him. And as a result of that, the kingdom that they had long awaited for and thought was coming when Christ would come into Jerusalem, they were hoping, a handful of them were believing and hoping that he would throw off the yoke of Rome, the yoke of Rome, that's what I meant, the Rome of yoke, <laughs> throw off the yoke of Rome and be a military leader. But he didn't come to just save Israel from the Romans. His purpose was much bigger, to save the world, not just tiny little Israel and the people in it. He came to them first, but his mission was much greater. But now their kingdom would be postponed because of their rejection. We saw that last week. And a few days from this time here in Matthew, they would shout, away with him, away with him, crucify him. These are the same people. And they would say, we have no king but Caesar. They would also go on and say, we will not have this man reign over us. The unbelieving Jews at the time. And honestly, it wouldn't matter if this happened in Germany, if it happened in Italy, if it happened in Ireland. The people would still reject God, because man rejects God. In, their, in, in, in our natural, we reject God, but God loves you, and he's given you everything, and he's given you a hope and a salvation that goes way beyond. How many of you know today that Jesus loves you and that he died for you? Yeah, he loves you dearly. He loves you. That's why he came. But Israel would now be left desolate because there was no fruit in their lives. They were drying up, in a sense, and become useless. And as we have already seen, the Gospel of Matthew doesn't really, um, uh, it doesn't follow a strict chronology of Jesus' life because its focus is on showing that Jesus is the king, the rightful heir to the throne of David. So the events here in the first 22 verses of Matthew 21 are not in chronological order. And, um, but I would like to treat them in chronological order and do things a little out of order in these verses that we're going to be looking at today, according to this chart behind me, according to not only the chronology that I was showing you, uh, the harmony of the Gospels, but also in light of this new scholarship. It's, it's, it's old, meaning 1979, but it's still um, relatively new. Um, and, and again, a... Um, a building upon what Sir Robert Anderson had put forth. But if we compare these 22 verses to what we see in Mark's gospel, I would encourage you to look at Mark's gospel, specifically chapters 1 through 26, and what we're looking at now. Mark's gospel has the chronology correct and how these things flowed. And so how do we know how these four gospel accounts fit together? You remember that the, the accounts are are different, but there is a way to marry them together to form a harmony, a single timeline, if you will. It's called the harmony of the Gospels. How do we know that? Well, there's been men over the years, um, men of God, who have made it their goal to put the pieces together and form a complete narrative. And that book that I just showed you, A Harmony of the Gospels, is one of them. It's a, it's a fantastic work. And, um, and, and already, we already looked at that. But we're going to look at this morning the, um, this chronology. 
We looked at the triumphal entry. This H, these numbers that I have are really for me, but I think you'll see there's a sequence to them. And uh, I did that according to this chronology, just so you could see how these things fit together. We looked last week at the triumphal entry, and again, looking at Mark's gospel and even um, this harmony of the gospels, it fits it all together very nicely. And I would encourage you to look at that when you get a chance. But we're going to look this morning, instead of starting right at verse 12, we're going to look at verse 18, which speaks about this fig tree being cursed. Because after the triumphal entry that we looked at last week, Jesus went out and he stayed at Bethany. And Bethany is this place uh, just uh, to the east of Jerusalem. There's Jerusalem today, and there's the Mount of Olives, and then Bethany is over in this area where Matthew, or excuse me, when um, Lazarus and his two sisters, where they lived, and Jesus went out there. And it says, now in the morning, now this would be Tuesday morning because the triumphal entry really happened on a Monday, the 10th of Nisan. But now in the morning, on Tuesday, he returned, Jesus, to the city, to Jerusalem, and he was hungry. And remember, uh, Passover was drawing near at this time, and Jerusalem would be filled with a few million people. And Jesus would be there to minister And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. Now, a couple of things here. The state of this fig tree and the curse that Jesus pronounced upon it really is a picture of the reality of where Israel was spiritually. The climate of Israel at that time. And although the context here, as we will see later when Jesus talks about this and gives us more information about this specific parable or what he did to the fig tree in verse 20, uh, the context immediately was belief in God. And there's no discrepancy there. It was speaking about the belief in God. But I believe there's a larger context here in addition to that, and it's pointing to the unfruitfulness of Israel at the time. That's why Jesus upbraided them for not knowing the time of their visitation. That's why he said, your house is left unto you desolate, because you did not know this your day. They had rejected him. And Israel was bearing no fruit spiritually and um, would be cursed for a season. For a season, because the Lord would ultimately, according to the Old Testament prophets, he would restore Israel and will restore Israel toward the time of Christ's second coming to the earth, which is even yet future to us today. In fact, in Romans, Paul tells us this. He says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel. And by the way, it's still happening today, by the way. There are Jews even today in Israel that are coming to know their Messiah. Amir is one of them, and there are many others, but for the most part, the nation still is blinded to the idea of who their Messiah is. And Paul goes on that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Until the church is complete, they are going to be completely blinded. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away godliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Perhaps the disciples remembered what Jesus said months prior. 
It's in Luke, Luke's gospel, chapter 13. Jesus gave a parable of the barren fig tree. He said, he also spoke this parable, Jesus speaking, a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, look, for three years, think of this, for three years, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? Now, obviously, God is not done with Israel. He's not. He's not done with Israel. Does everybody follow me? And the church has not replaced Israel. Everybody follow me on that, too? They're two totally different things, but they share the same destiny. Remember that because there's people trying to say the church has replaced Israel. That's nonsense. Paul tells us. But it's interesting that Jesus, for three years now, when he was speaking this to them, this parable of the barren fig tree, how long was his ministry? Three years. For three years, he's been coming to the fig tree to seek fruit on it. He's finding none, but rather they rejected him. In the Old Testament... Israel has been personified as the fig tree. Not as much as, say, the olive branch or the olive tree, but it has been personified with a fig tree. In Hosea 9, verse 10, God speaking, he says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the firstfruits on the fig tree. But they went to Baal Peor, meaning they and separated themselves to that shame. They became an abomination like the thing they loved. And so God is likening them to a, a fig tree. Now, other than the pigs, remember those pigs that, that were feeding on the, on the side of the hill that Jesus cursed, and they all ran down the hill and perished into the sea? Other than that instance, this is the only time where Jesus pronounced a curse and there was a destruction of something And we see the fig tree being one of those things. And it was also speaking of God's judgment, ultimately, that would come upon Jerusalem about 37 years prior, or after he passed away, after he was crucified and then raised to life. 37 years later, the curse of Israel would happen. And what happened? We know what happened in 70 AD. The Romans came and they destroyed Israel. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Matthew 23, verse 37, that the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I would have wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Again, a wholesale rejection. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, do you not see all these things? Do you see the temple complex and how Herod spent, you know, 39 years or whatever it was, or 46 years, you know, expanding the temple complex and making it much bigger than it's ever been? Do you see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, Jesus said, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And I showed you the picture of the stones that are still there to this day that they threw off the side. Now, this is the fig tree, and Jesus is speaking about the fig tree. And again, there's a more current understanding of it and then a broader one, and I think we can look at both. But let's go back to verse 12 now because this is the next thing in the chronology that really happened. And this is uh, the cleansing of the temple. 
Then Jesus, verse 12, went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Now this is the second time, the second and last time that Jesus would cleanse the temple. The first time is recorded for us in John chapter 2. Remember at the marriage... um, Uh, the marriage at Cana, it was after that that Jesus would go down and clean house in the temple. He cleansed it at the beginning of his ministry and also at the end of his ministry here on earth. Notice what it says, and let me just read it to you in John chapter 2. Again, this is the first time that Jesus cleansed the temple. It says in John 2 verse 13, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, notice he made a whip of cords, and this is where it's important for you to really read what's in the Bible and don't read into what is not there. And don't assume anything else than what is written in the Bible. You follow? And I'll explain why in a minute. He made a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house. Notice Jesus is equating himself equal with the father. Do you see that? That's his deity. He's one with the father. He says, do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Notice that even in his righteous anger, as he went into the temple, at the very beginning of his ministry, realizing how they had rejected God, and now it was all about money and and power and fame and prestige. The religious leaders could care less about the spiritual needs of the people. They were getting loaded on the widow's houses, and they were getting loaded on the kickbacks that they would get. Sounds like our government. Yeah, I said it. Sorry. Out of the abundance of the mouth, the heart speaks, I guess. Help, Lord. Then his disciples remembered. But notice, even in his righteous anger, when Jesus goes in, Does the Bible say that he took those cords and he started whipping people? He just grabbed that cord and he just back and and, and just whipping people. Does it say that at all? No, it doesn't. And yet movies portray, do you understand the, the danger of movies? Because the fact that it just says he used that to drive out the people and to drive out the animals. It doesn't say he struck anybody. You take a, a, a cord of whips and you start snapping that thing, those animals know the sound of what a whip is. And they're like, okay, out of here. He didn't whip anybody. He got their attention, and they got out of there. There was something about this Son of God. There was something about Jesus. They knew. They knew in their heart of hearts they had missed it bad. They knew in their heart of hearts that what they were doing was wrong, and they were getting away with it. And Jesus says, well, I'm not going to let you get away with it. I'm going to come, and I'm going to confront you, and I'm going to tell you the truth. You guys are a bunch of snakes in the grass, You're ripping people off, and you're going to be held accountable. And then his disciples continue on in in, in John chapter 2. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, the um, zeal for your house has eaten me up. 
So the Jews answered and said unto him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up, raise it up. And then the Jews said, It's taken 46 years for Herod to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? <laughs> I'd like to see you try. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. They would do, he was talking about his body. You destroy this temple, which is the real temple, and in three days it's going to be raised again. <laughs> Preposterous. You can just see a bunch of Harvard, snuffy, old, rusty. <laughs> That's preposterous. I won't believe it. I can't. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So the religious leaders, all the other merchants there, they were making lots of money off of the people as they would come into the Jerusalem for Passover, a very holy day. And instead of it being devoted to God, it was all about money for these guys. And instead of bringing their own animals, these people coming from all different areas and around different countries, instead of bringing their own animals, which you can understand in those days, you know, they didn't have trains and planes and automobiles. They rode on, they had to drag this animal from wherever they were to up to the Jerusalem. That's hard to do. But hey, the, the priests, they, they've done something really great. They've got all the animals there for you. You can come buy them for exorbitant prices. Oops, I said the quiet part out loud. For exorbitant prices. And they would also make a killing off the exchange rate. Your money wasn't good enough in the temple. That was a temple shekel. And you would take your money from all from wherever you came from and you would exchange it for the temple shekel to buy the animal that's already being given to you at an exorbitant price. But in the exchange rate, <laughs> big, big money being made. Big money. Yes, money. Money is being made, and the Lord saw it, and that's why he came to cleanse that temple. It, the exchange rate was crookery, what they were doing to these people, exchanging their currency into the temple shekel. Proverbs 20, verse 23 says, Diverse weights are an abomination to the Lord, and dishonest scales are not good. It's true. They were ripping off their own people who came from afar. God hated it. He saw what was happening and he sought to correct it. And Jesus, interrupting this lucrative business in the temple, would, of course, by doing so, he is going to stir up the ire of all of these religious leaders and, in a sense, cement his fate. They sought to destroy him and they would continue to seek to destroy him. And after Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection, and then his ascension, Israel would continue from 33 AD until 70 AD, 37 years later. They would continue business as usual and they would not repent. And therefore, they were destroyed by the Romans. And Jesus was, in a sense, taking out the trash one more time before his crucifixion, exposing their greed and their idolatry. Now let me ask you, as we talk about this temple and it being delivered from the trash and from the refuse, let's just bring it home. Is there trash in your life that needs to be taken to the curb? Are there any tables that need to be overturned or things need to be driven out of your heart? 
and your life and in my heart and in my life. Is the Lord wanting to remove something in your life that you're unwilling to part with? Are there yet rooms in your heart that you refuse to let the Holy Spirit have keys to? Are there dark corners in some of those rooms that you don't want the Holy Spirit to shine on? Perhaps you've been a Christian for some time and you've allowed certain things to creep back into your life that long ago you repented of, that you had victory over, but now things are slipping back into your life, things that you turned away from, and now they're creeping back into your life. The alcohol, the sexual sin, the lying, the uncontrollable anger, the gossip and the bitterness and the envy. Are these things starting to creep back into your life? Is it time to take the trash out again? Is it time to cleanse your temple? And just hear me that, yes, Jesus has cleansed you as a Christian. You're cleansed in the sense, but you also have to do something, and not for salvation. He saved you. But as a result of that, do we continue walking and doing horrible things? No, we don't. Rather, hopefully the Spirit of God, his job, if you will, in your heart is to conform you to the image of Christ and to give you the the grace to turn away from those evil things, giving you strength to resist sin and evil and to repent of those things. And God does that in the believer of each one of you. If you're a believer in Christ, he gives you that. And sometimes we just like to sin because we remember the old days. And it doesn't hurt, right? You know, I haven't drank, you know, Jack Daniels in several years. Ah, what's one little shot before the game? What's that going to do? And then next week, it's another shot. And then it's slowly creeping in. Where are you at today? And I asked myself the same question, you know, where am I at in all this, Lord? Do you need to cleanse this temple again? You've cleansed me, don't get me wrong, but practically, there's still things in my life that need to go. Follow me? Anybody feeling the same way, or am I, is there crickets in the room here? Okay, and there's laughter. That's a good sign. There's, there's life. Okay, good. We're all good? All right. All right. <laughs> is it time to clean out the temple again? Even though the temple that we're speaking of and Jesus was speaking of was a physical structure that the disciples were looking at, But the church is also the temple of the Holy Spirit. It tells us this in 1 Corinthians. Paul, speaking to them, says, Do you not know, this is 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who was joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh, but he who was joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And he goes on and he says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Oh my goodness. That hits home, doesn't it? Cleansing the temple... Jesus died to cleanse your temple. And more than that, he died to, set, he, he, he died to inhabit your, your body by his spirit. Because without the spirit of God in you, you are not a Christian. You can 
go to all the bake sales, you can go to all the potlucks, you can attend every service, you can give millions of dollars to the church, but unless you have the Spirit of God in you, you are not a Christian. So important to make Christ your Savior. He is the one that we need to deal with because he's the only one who died for you. And if I don't trust and put my faith in him, then I have no hope whatsoever. I will go to hell apart from him. That is the truth. That is the teeth of the gospel. But the sweetness of the gospel is that he's paid the price for you. And you just believe in what he said and did and trust in him. And you will have pleasures forevermore, holy pleasures. And you will live with him for eternity. I'm going to choose door number two. I'm going to choose life with him. How about you? How many of you have already made that commitment in your life and in your heart? Even though you know you've, you've messed up and you're imperfect, okay? I mean, we, let's just be honest with ourselves. Not one of us in here can say we've got a, a squeaky clean temple. Everything is, everything's in order. No problems. I'm good. The truth of the matter is we're not. And God is not angry with you about that. But it behooves us to take a look at our, the way we live, the things we say, the things that we do, the company we keep, the things we think about, the actions that we do. All these things are important for us to look at, right? Is it time to clean the house again? And again, I'm not talking about legalism. Or some works-based theology. I'm not talking about that at all. Because we know that, for by grace you have been saved. By grace, God's unmerited favor, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, this grace, this faith, uh, and, and being saved. It is a gift of God, not of works, follow me, lest any man should boast. And, and, but rather, I'm talking about the working out of what God has already put in. What does it tell us in Philippians? He says, work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling, before it is God who works in you, both to will and then to do of his good pleasure. So I don't work, I, I can't work out my, I can't earn my salvation. I have to wor- allow it to work out what God has already put in. That's what Paul meant in Philippians. I work it out. I allow it to work. I allow it to live. I allow the very life of Jesus Christ in my life to continue to work out and express itself in God's way and loving people and sharing that message that is so critical today. Believe me, the world needs Jesus. It's always needed Jesus. Do you still need Jesus? Or have you walked with the Lord so long, you're like, oh, I've got it, Lord. I got it from here. Thanks. Appreciate it. I can handle it from here. I've been doing this a long time, you know. He's like, well, if that's your attitude, you don't know me that well. (laughs) There's no room for pride in Christianity. There's no room for rock stars. There's no room to say, for people to say, well, I've arrived, follow me. No, that's how cults form. We follow Jesus, amen? We don't follow Joseph Smith. We don't follow Charles Taze Russell from the Watchtower. We don't follow whoever it is. We follow Jesus. Only he is God, amen? And we are to put off the old man. We are to take out this trash. Paul in Colossians says, If then, or since you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above which, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on things on the earth. See, that's where we get stuck, is because we're always looking at the things on the earth, and we forget the, the, the vertical, and we're always looking on the horizontal. 
And that's where we get stuck is on the, on the horizontal. Keep your eyes fixed. And that's why I, I, I shared that scripture in the very beginning this morning as we're looking at the, what's going on in Israel. Unless we frame what's going on in the scripture, it won't make any sense. But now it makes total sense. We know what's happening and where it's going. He told us in advance. That psalm was written over a thousand years before Christ. So now we're in 2023. That's over 3,023 years ago it was written. And it's more true today than it was back then. Even more true today than it was back then. And it's coming to fruition. And it's ultimate fulfillment. It's coming, folks. It's coming. It's coming. Do you believe it? Or is this just a bunch of stories handed down by... No, this is the word of God. You can trust it. You can put your faith in it. You can rest. Every, you can bet everything on it. In fact, your soul, your very life, you have bet on it. If you're a believer in Christ, you have put your eternity. And you said, I believe this. I believe in everything in it. Do you believe everything in it? Are you studying it? Are you reading it daily? Are you chewing on it? Are you, are you more than just you know, opening the, the daily bread and going through that? Are you really seeking and digging in and taking a part of the Bible and really digging through it and learning and growing and talking with other people about it? Hey, what do you think about this? It's exciting. Believe me, some, one of my favorite places is in my office because I'm surrounded. It looks like, it looks like a, a cheap bookstore, I guess. I don't know. I got books everywhere. I love books. I got this problem. It's called, what is it? Um, book, um, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a, I'm sure it's a problem. Bookomaniac, bookomaniac or something. A libro, libromaniac. There we go. Uh, so anyway, but notice, um, we need to put to death our members on the earth. And Paul lists this horrible list. Fornication, uncleanness. Does this ring a bell with anybody? Is anybody flirting with fornication? Anybody flirting still with uncleanness? What about passion or evil desire or covetousness, which is idolatry? Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked. Notice Paul speaking to them. You used to walk in this. And Christians, you, you used to walk in these areas, but not anymore. And if you are, is it time to clean the temple is it time to fess up to it and acknowledge it to God privately and let him deal with you? Yes, it is. That's why it's here, right? He goes, but now you are to put off all these. And he goes on and he speaks of anger and wrath and malice, you know, and filthy language out of your mouth. It's appalling to me just the language of some Christians. They sound like salty sailors. Where's the holiness anymore in the church? Is it okay just to drop an F-bomb here and there? You can. It's not going to send you to hell, but your witness is going to be like, people are going to look at are you kidding me? You got such a filthy mouth. Do you eat with that mouth? You know? Think about it. How is your language? Do not lie to one another. And then he goes on. I'm just going to get right to it. And he goes, now... 
Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on these things. So put off all those other things and put on these new things. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Cleanse the temple. Put on these things, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. But above all these things, and here it is, put on love. Put on agape. And apart from the Spirit of God, not possible. Put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And when you belong to Jesus, isn't there a wonderful peace? Isn't there a wonderful peace when you finally, at the end of the day, you've gone to him at your, and you kneel at your bedside or you're in your pillow at night or maybe some other closet that you go to and you just get the record straight. You say, Lord, I've really blown it today. Or maybe, Lord, I, I, things went really well today. I want to thank you, Lord. And if there's anything that I've done that, have, that has grieved you, forgive me. But if there are things, where you've grieved him. It's great to set the record straight. And you can walk out of that closet. You can get up from your knees from that time of confessing those things. And God's like, I I don't know anything that you talked about now because it's all under the blood. But do you believe it? Because the Bible says that we can believe that. Or perhaps you're not a child of God. Perhaps you are not born again. Don't you, want to be, uh, don't you want to be done with a life of empty pursuits and a life filled with guilt and shame? There are people sitting here this morning that are not born again. And their life is filled with guilt and shame. Don't you know that you can be set free today? Have the slate cleaned and God to forgive you for all of your sins? And that's, that's the truth. That's the wonderful part of the gospel. The hard part is acknowledging it, that I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner destined for hell unless I turn to Christ. I must. Jesus said, you must be born again. He said that to a very religious man. And for those of us who do call Jesus Lord, how can we call him Lord if we don't obey him? In Luke's gospel, chapter 6, verse 46, he says, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? That's a good point. <laughs> It's an inconvenient truth. I call you Lord, but I really don't want to do what you say. Well, then he's really not your Lord then, is he? If we only allow him to be Lord over selective areas of our life, then let's be honest and say that Jesus is not Lord. Is it possible to be saved and yet not have him be Lord of your life? I believe it is possible. Yes, I believe it is possible, but the more he is Lord of your life, the greater assurance you will have of him being your Savior also. Let me repeat that. I believe it's possible, but the more he is Lord of your life, the greater assurance you will have of him being your Savior. If Jesus is Lord over your life, you will have even greater confidence that he is your Savior as well. Follow me? This is why you will, you will find the phrase, Lord and Savior, in the Bible. That phrase, Lord and Savior, only occurs four times in the Bible. And it's all in Second Peter. Lord and Savior. And the order of this is really important. You'll never find Savior and Lord in the Bible. You know why? Because if he's not your Lord, how can you have any confidence that he's your Savior?
Verse 13, back in this cleansing of the temple, notice Jesus said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Here, quoting from Isaiah 56, verse 7, but you have made it a den of thieves. You've made it a den of thieves. And God hates it when people who are supposed to represent him are being enriched by greed using deception. And that's exactly what the religious leaders did. They were fleecing the flock of God. And then verse 14, Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And again, healing the blind and the lame, and this was by, put here by no mistake of Matthew. This should have sent a signal to someone who was really listening. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And the fact that he did these things verified his claims of being the Messiah. The Jews at this time should have known this, or at least be willing to acknowledge what Isaiah said some 700 years before this, when it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, speaking of Christ in the millennial reign, or the kingdom of heaven, yet future to us, this thousand-year reign. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. And then the lame shall leave like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing for water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert looking forward to that day aren't you I so am I'm so looking forward to it but by him healing the blind and the lame he is basically everyone around should have known hey this is what was spoken of in Isaiah these are things that the Messiah is going to do yeah that's why he's there you know, in your Bible, you might want to put off to the side, duh, right? That's why he was there. But when the chief priests, verse 15, and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, these miracles, and the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna, or save now to the son of David. <coughs> Remember that the son of David, we've looked at this, it's a messianic title. There were some there who knew exactly who he was, but most didn't. The kingdom of God was among them, and they didn't even know it and wouldn't receive him. But then the chief priests, the scribes, they were indignant, and then in verse 16 they said to him, Do you bear witness? Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yeah. Have you ever read? And here he quotes Psalm 8. He says, have you not heard, have you not read, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? And this is why Jesus said in Matthew 18, he said, Assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you have the thought and the heart and the mind of a child. It doesn't mean that you have to be naive, but you have to be believing. And Jesus heard these young ones, perhaps these young boys who are there for the first time, 12 years old, and, and the Pharisees, are they're there for their bar mitzvah and to be men of the law now, or to be sons of the law. And, and maybe they overheard Jesus and they were calling him the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. The Pharisees are losing their mind. We're losing control of the next generation. We've got to do something. Let's kill them. That's exactly what they did. Losing control, 
Control. Interesting, isn't it? They're losing control. Who was in control? Yeah. He's in control. That encourages my heart quite a bit to know that God is in control. Nobody else. No one else. Even if things don't go well for me, even if I die a martyr's death, I am trusting in Jesus. I trust him. I don't trust anybody else. I trust him. Do you trust him? Verse 17, Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. Now, we go back to this chronology here, and I don't want to you know, beleaguer this, but Jesus just cleansed the temple, Matthew, you know, Matthew 12, verse 17. And in, in between, immediately after this, are three events that the Bible speaks about. They're all included in the, um, they're all in the book of John. But right after these things in John's gospel, from John chapter 12, verse 20 through verse 50, immediately following those things are what we see here now in the lesson of the withered fig tree. And I'm going to put this graphic up here again just to kind of give you an idea of where we're at. Because now notice, in Mark's gospel, chapter 11, verse 20, at this very moment it says, and this is why Mark's gospel is so easy to follow, because all of these time references are baked right into the text, and it's real easy to follow, makes sense with what's behind me. It's really easy to follow. But again, Matthew is a little bit disjointed because he had a different purpose, remember? But in Matthew, excuse me, in Mark's gospel, 11 verse 20, it says, Now in the morning, now this would be Wednesday morning, this would be right here, because here Jesus cleansed the temple, and now Wednesday morning on the 12th of Nisan, which was April 1st, this would be the time when Jesus would give this lesson of the withered, weathered, fig, the withered, withered, weathered, something. How do you spell it? How do you pronounce it? I don't know. The withered fig tree. Say that really fast three times. Actually, don't. Okay, so. Now, in the morning, Wednesday, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. Wasn't it like the day before he made the curse on the fig tree? And now they come back on the Wednesday, and they realize the thing had completely dried up from the roots. In verse 20, in our, uh, back here in Matthew now, in chapter 21, it says, And when the disciples saw it, they marveled at the fig tree, and they said, How? Did the fig tree wither away so soon? And so Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. This is an amazing passage. And this is a very difficult passage. And I say that because it's, an, it's amazing because in God, God's estimation, he's able to do the impossible. And we've seen him do the impossible. But it seems that God will do the impossible within the confines of his will, and this he does, and this he has done. Let me just rattle off a few to you. Did God part the Red Sea? That was a miracle, never been done before. Moses, put out your rod. <laughs> okay. A couple million people pass through on dry land. Pharaoh tries to follow him with his armies. God closes it up and destroys them all. 
Is he able to do the miraculous? Easy for him to do if it's his will. Did God lengthen the day of Joshua so that they could snuff out their enemies? He did. He did do that. And it's notable, significant, notable thing. Did he turn the sun backwards for Hezekiah when he was sick? Yeah, he did. That's even crazier. Can God do these things? The one who spoke all things? Can he, can he just go, I'm just going to do this. Watch, people are going to freak out in, in 2020. Because I'm, I, you know, when I write this stuff, and nobody, can God, you know, can God you know, make an, uh, you know, something so big he can't move? Well, he moved the sun. That's kind of a big deal. He's kind of, it's just a little bit. He did it. Did God wipe out a huge Amalekite army with, a, with an angel of God? 187,000, something like that. Did he wipe them out for Israel? And they didn't even have to do anything. Dead bodies everywhere. Yes, he did do that. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? When God moves, he moves. And there is nothing, there's no one who can say, well, that just defies physics. That can't be, Lord. You created the law of physics. And he goes, yes, I did create the law of physics. And at any time, I can just tweak the machine. I can tweak it for my own purposes. And you don't have anything to say about it. I'm sorry. Oh, you high-flutant Harvard, you know. He can't do that. Well, he did. So read it and weep. Right? He can do anything he chooses. If it's his will and his plan and purpose, God can do anything. And so this is not, when we look at this, and whatever things you ask in prayer, verse 22, believing you will receive, this doesn't mean that you have a blank check and you can ask whatever you want, even in the lust of your own heart, and that somehow Jesus is now obliged to give it to us, but rather what we ask in his name, but rather what we need to do is when we ask in his name, We ask in accordance to his will. What does it tell us in John? Jesus said to them, and whatever you ask in my name, John 14, verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do that my Father may be glorified. And then in 1 John 5, verse 14, now this is the confidence that we have in him, speaking of Christ, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. To me, that kind of clears it up pretty good. So I can ask anything, even the impossible things. I have seen impossible things happen. And it's pretty extraordinary. Have you ever woke up, and and maybe there, and these are just small things. Have you ever woke up one day and there was something that was going to happen that day that you were just dreading, and you're like, oh, I just, I wish it wouldn't happen, but it's it's on the schedule, everyone is going to be there, and this is what's going to happen, and Lord, I just, I don't want to be there, I don't want to go through this, I just need a day, I need a break, and then all of a sudden something happens, and the meeting is canceled. Little things like that. You know, you just cry out to him and what seems like, and, and even, even other things. You know, one thing that I think is a miracle, and then we'll end, I think is really fascinating. And this is one, this is free, by the way. Just a year or so ago, remember when Roe v. Wade was overturned? 
And when did it happen? In one of the darkest times of our history. No one would have thought. They certainly would have thought it would have been on the during some a president who is pro-life. You would think that it would have happened on his watch, right? But it didn't. It happened on the watch of somebody who was pro-choice. And not to get political here, but there's a there's a battle, right? But God allowed that to be overturned on a federal level, okay, on a federal level, because it was right. And everything that had happened in the past was, a, was on falsehood, was based on falsehood. That's the fact, that's the truth. You may not agree with that, but you look into it, and if you have an open heart, you'll see it. It's very clear. But God can do great and wonderful things. He does. And so I want to ask you really quick, and then we're going to stand and pray. Just what is the impossible mountain in front of you? Begin to pray about it, and 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 pray about it often. Not in some, you know, you know uh, be sincere in your repetition of that prayer. God doesn't like repetition when it's just meaningless and you're just kind of going through the motions. But when you really are like, God, I really need, and and I believe this is your will, God. And I'm praying for this or for that. And 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 it's really not selfish really at all anymore. It's about somebody else or somebody being healed or some marriage being healed or something. And you're like, please, God, help me. My marriage is on the rocks. I need you to do something. And you pray and you pray and you pray. Is he able? He is able. But also take a look as Jesus cleansed that temple. Let's be willing to look at our own temple today and look within and say, Lord, there are things that need to go. I need to let go of this. I need to let go of that. And would you join me? Let's stand together and let's just ask him because I believe that every one of us, because not one of us in this room is perfect. We've all got issues, and most of us know exactly what it is that's really an Achilles heel to each one of us. Most of us know the things that we're really tempted by, and the things that we're struggling with, and the things that we've been dabbling in that nobody knows about. God knows all those things, and he loves you right now. But I believe the Holy Spirit of God would ask you, are you willing to give it up? Are you willing to Give your heart to me again. Are you willing to let me, by my spirit, to come in to your life, into your heart, and to shine my spotlight on every dark corner and have the keys to every room that you've withheld from me? Lord, we ask that you would do that today. Lord, that we would be honest with you, certainly not publicly, but privately when we are alone with you. Lord, to just take inventory of these things and say, Lord, please search me just as David did in the the Psalms. Lord, search me and try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. And then, lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, I pray that for myself. I pray that for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, would you encourage us today? And again, Lord, we lift up Jerusalem. We lift up Israel. And we pray for your peace upon that land. And we pray that you bring all of this quickly to an end, according to your will and plan. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 God bless you.